saving the planet is up to you. VegCast. As we'll learn on VegCast 72. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, this is VegCast 72. It is numbered in the sequence of VegCast, but I have to tell you right here from the outset, this is not a canonical VegCast. It will be assigned an asterisk by the great podcast librarians of the future who will compile all the podcasts worldwide and especially compile all the VegCasts. Uh, and this will not be among the regular uh, VegCast because it's not our usual format where we have a guest, an interview, some music, some science fact, uh, news, and so forth. Uh, this is simply one audio recording with uh, the VegCast theme as bookends. Uh, but I thought I should get that out there, get it out there for people who are not aware of uh, this issue and some crucial news that just came out this week about it. This is a recording of a speech I gave, a little lecture, I guess you could call it, at the 350 Philly dinner uh, on October 21st. At Horizons, uh, and so if you don't want to hear this, uh, I'm going to let you know now. That's all there is to this podcast, other than the theme music and this explanation. But if you do want to hear it, why then I invite you to sit back. As always, turn up your MP3 player, relax, etc. As we deliver the 72nd. And even though this is not a canonical VegCast, it is still sponsored by Luna and Larry's Coconut Bliss, who remind you that there are many ways to achieve bliss. We use coconuts. Now, this is uh, just going to be about a 20-minute talk, me talking. Uh, I've given you fair warning on that. A lot of the material that you're going to be hearing about has been covered on previous VegCasts in Science Facts, but not Everybody, I have found that not every single person who listens to a podcast here at VegCast has listened to all of them. I know, it's crazy. You'd think that everybody would go and, you know, use up uh, their time and uh, <laughs> computer memory and everything else to listen to all 71 previous VegCasts. But not everybody has, so this kind of ties a bunch of those together along with a kind of a blockbuster new report that uh, came out the morning of this uh, talk, which is kind of why I had to scramble to uh, work that in. And so now, uh, without any further ado, we're going to take you over to the first floor of Horizons Restaurant right off South Street in Philadelphia for a talk entitled Animal Agriculture and Climate Change. Thank you for having me here. I'm going to be uh, talking about animal agriculture and uh, climate change, global warming, and the, the whole green thing. Um, I'm assuming that people who are here are familiar with some of the basic concepts of the sustainability movement or the sustainability impulse. And I have to just start out by saying that uh, one of the ways that animal agriculture is uh, fundamentally opposed to sustainability is that uh, one core concept 
of sustainability is efficiency, is reducing waste and increasing efficiency in a given system so that you're not uh, using energy and having energy go get consumed or go places where it's not being used. Animal agriculture is just about one of the most inefficient systems that you can imagine, uh, and we'll be going through why that is, but uh, that is a fundamental problem with it that makes it not a, a good partner with sustainability. And I will say at the outset um, that there, there was a report that came out today, which you'll hear about if you haven't already, uh, when I'm talking, that I tried to kind of shoehorn into this. Uh, so if there's moments where I pause and uh, I'm shuffling papers or can't read my own writing or anything else, you can blame it on that. Uh, and <laughs> that'll be fine. Um, but I'm going to talk about uh, the connection between animal agriculture and global warming uh, and in two ways. Um, primarily, I'm going to be talking about the causal connection, you know, how animal agriculture contributes to uh, various environmental problems. And also, though, I'm going to be talking thematically. I see uh, a few thematic links in how the general population has uh, taken up the concept of global warming and is slowly but possibly taking up uh, the concept of uh, reducing and or eliminating animal agriculture. It's, uh, it's my hope that having made a strong case for the causal link, the thematic link will be more obvious, but I'll spend uh, some time on that too. In, uh, in looking at the ways that animal agriculture contributes to uh, global warming, and I'm going to be talking about global warming, climate change, uh, environmental degradation, just basically as all part of a package. It's, it's a lack of respect for the planet uh, that has uh, deleterious effects on the planet. If I say the wrong phrase here and there, you, you know what I mean. Uh, because it's all interrelated. It's hard to find something that is bad for the environment in this sector and yet good for it in this sector. So it does all kind of interrelate. As I'm doing this, I'm going to be citing some numbers, but I want to point out before doing this that in just in assembling these, uh, I was struck by the disproportionality of it, the, the enormity in uh, the most literal sense of the word enormity of how animal agriculture just has this huge, profound effect on our earth, uh, as well as on us and on the animals. So uh, whether one of these numbers is you know, off by a percent or more, or whether you find this to be well-sourced or ill-sourced, um, the big picture is, is pretty overwhelming. And the general takeaway, I guess, is that any movement or event or uh, person who claims to be green has pretty much got to take a hard look at how what they are doing may be supporting animal agriculture. Because most of us uh, support it uh, one way or the other, whether we like it or not. Um, so. As I say, well, it's important to look at these numbers. The main contention, I guess, is that the, the green movement in general 
is uh, is missing a great opportunity to fulfill its actual mission, uh, which is to achieve real change. Uh, because even though some change is getting done and some things are happening here and there, uh, the elephant in the room really is animal agriculture and uh, unfortunately a lot of the members of the Green Movement have a kind of uh, block against looking at that in the same way that they look at other things. I'll talk about that um, just a little more later. But let's start out with something uh, simple and vital, water. So it's becoming obvious that fresh drinking water uh, will continue to be a major issue for large populations of people worldwide and it is becoming uh, an issue including a political flashpoint right here in the United States. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there have been uh, some towns running out of water, some rivers that are running dry, people arguing about whether the river should be used for, uh, for fishing or for fresh water for people. And uh, as it, it's starting to become more scarce, uh, people are looking a little more intensely at how we use water and whether there could be some more efficiency in that, in that system. Um, now, of course, most of us have the luxury, uh, living where we do, of having access to fresh, cool, clean drinking water just about any time of the day or night, which is a little bit exceptional uh, around the world. Um, so it is because of our privilege that I say it is more up to us, uh, the privilege, to look at major changes that we can make in our lives uh, than it is to people who may be you know, living hand to mouth or trying to get water somewhere, and I would include in that the whole concept of uh, what we do with our diets. Um, there are people who say, well, why should I, you know, change my diet if this person here is, you know, they eat meat all the time. The Maasai, they're constantly eating, eating meat. Um, I would say, let's, let's clean up our act first and then start talking to the rest of the world about how they're living. Um, but anyway, back to water. Uh, given that there is not an indefinite supply, uh, we know that wasting water by uh, leaving the tap running when we don't need it, have it on, or whatever, is uh, is an arrogant, wasteful thing to do. And we say, well, that's not who I am. I don't want to do that. So we we make a decision. Well, I'm I'm going to change this little uh, behavior. But we also know that different choices that we make in a given given day can either save water or wastewater, depending on which way you're looking at it. And um, Good Magazine, I don't know if everybody's familiar with Good Magazine, but it is a good magazine. They, uh, they did a, a, a great chart about uh, direct and indirect water usage, kind of going through the day and looking at these various things that you could do, and how many gallons of water this used versus that, and how you know, if you chose to do this versus that, you might save X amount of, of gallons of water. And they had um, things like uh, if you had just you flush the toilet versus you flush your low flow toilet, or uh, you have you take a shower or you take your low flow shower, or you 
you uh, hand wash your dishes, or you have an Energy Star dishwasher. Some people are not aware that generally a good, efficient dishwasher is much more uh, water efficient than washing dishes by hand. And uh, also a faucet, if you run your faucet for something, versus you run your low flow faucet. So they had all these things. Uh, and the difference, for example, with the toilet, uh, it made a difference of 4.7 gallons. The shower made a difference of 15 gallons. The, uh, the hand uh, washing dishes versus the dishwasher made a difference of 16 gallons. Your faucet made a difference of 3.5 gallons. So that's the general area in which these choices were working. Then they had uh, some of your food choices that you might have. And... Um, they, they did not have the choice, for example, of having a tofu dinner or eating uh, at Horizons or uh, having a nice grilled seitan at home or uh, even uh, frying up some tofu pups or whatever. Uh, so I can't give you uh, the perfect uh, meal here, but just putting together, if you, if you were to have three baked potatoes, uh, a salad, a piece of fruit, and two beers. Now that would be a weird, be a weird meal, but it would probably uh, give you basically the, the various nutrients that you need. Um, that would uh, take about uh, 100 gallons of water, just a tiny bit over 100. Um, if you had chicken for the meal, uh, a pound of chicken, that would take 287 gallons of water. If you had a pound of beef, it would be 1,500 gallons of water. Um, and the joke with this chart is that they had to arrange it such that they could show the beef right in the middle so that the, the little icons showing the different gallons could flow down to the end of the chart and then spread out all below the entire bottom of the chart because it's so disproportionate. So instead of the things that they're talking about with, uh, uh, you know, your low flow faucet, your your toilet, and so forth, uh, between 10 and 20 gallons, the difference that that makes, if you have beef, we're talking about a difference of 1,400 gallons. That's what I'm trying to get across with the the where it's almost it's hard to get your head around that. Um, Another thing that uh, we hear a lot about in the green movement when we talk about food is food miles. Like you want to eat local because your food, if it was, if it came from far away, there is more energy used to get it there. Whereas if it's local, there's less, and so you're doing a good thing. Um, a study at Carnegie Mellon University found uh, that comparing the two, uh, food miles basically don't matter if you're going to be eating a standard uh, American diet. And the quote that uh, the researchers gave is, if you have an average American diet, you're not going to do that much for climate change while eating locally. They found that if you go 100% local, if you eat everything 100% from right around where you live, uh, you basically save the equivalent of a car driving 16 Hundred kilometers. Whereas if you go uh, vegetarian one day a week, you save 1,860 uh, kilometers worth of driving. So just one day uh, is 
having more of an effect than uh, going completely local, which is almost impossible uh, for people to do. Another study found one pound of beef uh, generates more greenhouse gas than driving for an hour and a half straight while leaving every light on in your house. Okay, so again, we have all these tips about, oh, if you turn the lights off, if you take these driving techniques where you can save fuel, just imagine how much of that is completely thrown out the window uh, if you're eating meat. Um, the Amazon rainforest, everybody's familiar with the rain, the destruction of the rainforest, what a terrible thing. Uh, it's probably known by a lot of people in this room, but not by the general population that uh, between 70 and 80 percent of all the rainforest uh, destruction is it's being cleared to make pasture for cattle uh, to graze on or for feed crops for those cattle. Um, there's also a new study that uh, came out finding that uh, chlorofluorocarbons are no longer the greatest threat to the ozone layer. Now nitrous oxide is, and that's largely because we've done a good job of eliminating chlorofluorocarbons in products that we buy. But nitrous oxide has also risen in that time, and of course, 65% uh, or basically two-thirds of uh, man-made, human-made nitrous oxide in the atmosphere is directly caused by animal agriculture. Uh, so I'm not going to go into great detail on that. The dead zone in the Gulf is also largely attributable to animal agriculture. Uh, in that some of it is from manure, some of it is from uh, chemical fertilizers. But when I talk about the inefficiency of the system, uh, when you're using fertilizers to grow plants for people to eat, that is a certain amount of fertilizer you have to use. When you're feeding those plants to animals for people to eat, there's all of a sudden a lot more plants, a lot more fertilizer that you uh, have to use. Uh, public lands ranching, uh, welfare ranching, a lot of people are not aware that our public lands, uh, up to 300 million acres, are being used at any given time by private ranchers that are being leased out at a discount uh, for ranchers to have their cattle run roughshod over. It causes massive uh, environmental uh, degradation, destroys ecosystems. Um, hog farms, uh, the the manure legumes they have on hog farms are one of the sources of uh, carbon and uh, methane in the atmosphere, but uh, are also so concentrated and so strong that now there are many lawsuits around the country from neighbors of hog farms who have uh, suffered cancer, nerve damage, all kinds of effects of having to uh, basically breathe the, uh, the residue from this. Um, I can't even, I don't even have time to go into these food animals are responsible for diseases like tuberculosis, HIV, bird flu, swine flu, SARS. That's not even talking about E. coli, Salmonella, Campylobacter, Listeria, all of those ailments that are not, you know, it's not exactly having to do with pollution of the earth, but it's the pollution of us. And uh, antibiotics, 70% of all the antibiotics used, you know, you hear how, well, we don't want to just take antibiotics willy-nilly because that will cause the bacteria to get stronger. Well, 70% of all the antibiotics used in this country are used in healthy food animals, not used in sick food animals, but used 
just to keep giving them so that they'll become sick less often. And finally, uh, the United Nations did a study in 2006 that found uh, that animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions, which is 40% more than the greenhouse gas emissions caused by all forms of human transport. So planes, trains, automobiles, boats, anything that has to do with us having to get around, which is what I would say at least 80% of the national dialogue about what we need to do uh, to become green and to become more sustainable is revolving around. It's, it's, it's our cars, it's, uh, you know, it's, it'll have to have more fuel efficiency, it's, oh, you really need to take the plane, that's so wasteful, and yet that is nowhere near uh, the, the amount caused by animal agriculture. Well, the thing is today, just today, the thing that kind of threw my careful preparation into a cotton hat is that a new report from the World Watch Institute came out uh, where they have uh, been doing this for a while, looking into this 2006 report uh, by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and uh, found that the scientists who did that made certain assumptions and made certain choices to exclude certain data, um, specifically so that they could put out something and say, as they did, now this is probably conservative. This is probably conservative estimate. They, they picked the most conservative numbers here, there, and everywhere else, just so they could say, even if you look at it conservatively, livestock accounts for more global warming than all of human transport. Well, Worldwatch went back and found areas where they, they had either chosen not to or just missed uh, certain logical connections, uh, which we can go into later if you want. But uh, their ultimate finding is that at least 51% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide are attributable to animal agriculture. Uh, and that means that raising animals for food is a bigger threat to the planet than all other factors put together. So. That's, I'm going to leave the, the data thing there and just say that uh, faced with, with stuff like this, with these, these numbers and this data, it seems to me to be overwhelming. And uh, I have the easy position of having already chosen my lifestyle uh, before I knew anything about this. But I would urge anyone who's, who's listening to this and wants to live in such a way that they are uh, helping, they're trying to achieve a net benefit for the planet rather than hurting it as much as possible, uh, should look at how much you may be contributing to animal agriculture, either personally or institutionally as, as part of a system that you're working with, uh, because that is uh, now, this is the new reality that animal agriculture we can do. We can get the most efficient cars. We can get. We can wipe out coal plants, and we'll still have this 51% that we need to deal with, and that that will make these other things that we do uh, almost negligible. Uh, so, uh, what I would suggest is that 
uh, people take a look at that. And I do think the tide is slowly turning. And the, this is a very interesting report uh, from the World Watch Institute. I did a uh, post on my blog at the Daily News, Earth to Philly. Uh, today, if you go to earthtophilly.com, uh, today or tomorrow, you'll see that there. So you can get more detail from that. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to point out is that the World Watch Institute didn't, didn't just like look at this stuff. They then said, what are we going to do about this? And when the UN did the same thing in 2006, they came up with these completely wishy-washy kind of things like, well, if you made this... <coughs> You know, it, basically, they, they argued for more concentrated factory farms. They said if factory farms were just more concentrated and more terrible for animals, uh, you could you could start to get a little bit more efficiency. But they, even they didn't claim that that would realistically wipe it out. And the thing that the World Watch Institute does is say, look, we need to reduce drastically reduce animal agriculture, and we need to get people to start eating things other than animal products. And they actually go and lay out a plan for how to work with uh, the food industry to make the point to them, look, this industry, if you're basing it on animal agriculture, it's going to die because the planet can't survive as the population increases with, uh, with this paradigm. So it's going to die, you're better off getting in on these meat analogs and dairy analogs and other products that are plant-based that people can eat. It's very proactive and uh, I was really impressed by that. And I, uh, I urge everybody to read that. And I would just close by saying that I realize uh, it's a difficult thing to take something in intellectually and say, well, now I'm going to you know, change something that is, that is visceral, and what we eat is a, uh, it's a visceral thing, and we have connections to it that a lot of time our intellect can't reach. But uh, one of the great things about that is that it can be affected viscerally by having options such as Horizons, where people can experience how good food can be uh, without having anything to do with animal products I want to salute Horizons for that and uh, encourage people, if you are not already familiar with it, to try some of the many great vegan eateries we have in Philadelphia and see that it's not so much a question of, uh, of deprivation as it is of just eating different things that I think will make you feel better because you can feel good uh, while you're eating them. You can feel good about the, the animals that you're not uh, putting through torture and other stuff that we could go into some other time. But you can also feel good that you are not contributing to that 51% of, uh, of the global warming that's going on. All right, thank you.
that is VegCast 72. Thanks to Luna and Larry's Coconut Bliss for sponsoring VegCast. No soy, no dairy, no comparison. It's the evolution of ice cream. And thanks to the members of 350 Philly who set up this lecture at Horizons. That would be Dara Lovitz, Layla Fussfeld, and Catherine McComer. And I should point out that 350 is an international organization focusing on the upcoming Copenhagen uh, Summit. They're doing a bunch of events this Saturday, October 24th. I will have the link to that in our show notes and, of course, the link to the World Watch study as well. So get out there and live like you mean it. Bad.